come around that way and you can grab one from over there. Uh, everybody else, if you have a Bible, uh, we're going to turn to the book of Acts. And so I want to invite you there to the book of Acts. We're going to be in chapter 8. Um, if you don't have a Bible, you can go grab uh, a Bible from the tech booth back there. There's sides of the tech booth. Feel free to go grab one. Um, if you need to borrow it, you can borrow it. If you need to take it with you because you don't have one that you can read and understand, feel free to do that. It's our gift to you, gladly. And uh, if you're a user of the Bible app, you can open up that app right now and find our live event, and we will uh, you'll be able to track along with all the sermon notes and scriptures and that kind of thing, okay? So, Acts chapter 8, we're going to take up the verse, first half or so uh, of that chapter. So, um, let, me, let me tell you about last night. Saturday night for me goes something like this. Kids get put down. Um, typically my wife goes to bed. I'm finishing up the last little bit of PowerPoint slides and getting the Bible app stuff together, all that kind of stuff. And somewhere about 11 o'clock last night, I'm closing my laptop, taking the dog out to make sure that we don't poop or pee on the floor, right? All of those things. Um, and then, and then the noise, the piercing sound, of, just like that, of a smoke alarm. I didn't know the sound effects were at play, but that's what happened. <laughs> Twice in a row in the 11 o'clock service, people have done things that were unsuspecting. Um, it, it went off last night, 11 o'clock, and my teenager comes running out of his room. I think that's my smoke alarm. I'm like, well, glory to God, the house isn't on fire, so that's good. I think it may just be something malfunctioned. So, uh, it, but it was that sound. It wasn't the, the, the chirp, chirp of a battery, even though it was told to me, hey, I don't think you've changed the battery in the couple of years that we've lived here. Thank you very much. We'll deal with that at not 11 o'clock, okay? Uh, so, uh, you know, at that point, there's, there's basically two choices. Number one, you don't sleep. Or number two, you go all in until the problem is solved. Who's with me on that, right? Because otherwise, there's no, there, I mean, you're no, there's no getting away from that. There's no, you can't navigate. There's no third way. And so all in last night at 11 o'clock looked like getting a stool out of the garage and getting a vacuum cleaner, hoping it's not the battery and sucking up the dust or whatever. We had stirred some stuff up, sucking up the dust. Maybe it was one of the silverfish occasionally gets in there. You suck that thing up, all that kind of stuff. Finally, I mean, we're up the girl, all in, shut the doors so we don't wake anybody else up in the house. And finally... You do that stare down thing. Who's with me on this, right? You stare that thing down like, don't you, don't you do it. Don't you beep again. So much so that if, if you had an out-of-body experience right then, like you would think to yourself, why are you looking at and talking to an electronic thing? I, nonetheless, that's what I did. We got it all vacuumed out and that kind of thing, and I'm staring it down, and it goes quiet. And in the middle of that stare down moment, I thought to myself, there's only one good way out of this. And that is to go all in. Like I'm only going to get through this situation if I'm fully committed to the situation. Like I'm only going to see my way through it if I'm sold out right in the middle of it. And that, that, that's today. That's, that's the text for today. Is that we would be a people who see ourselves in the middle of the situation that we're in, whatever it may be. We'll see the church in Acts 8 in the middle of the situation. But the only way that they are moving forward through the situation is to be sold out in the middle of the situation. So Acts chapter 8, you ready? Um, and Saul, that's who held the, the coats uh, for the people who stoned Stephen, Saul approved of his execution. 
talking about Stephen. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles who, for any number of reasons, you know, may have decided to stay in Jerusalem, hold down the fort or whatever. Devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him, but Saul was doing what? Ravaging the church and entering house after house. He dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. So let's start here with this whole idea of being sold out. Let's, let's think for just a second about, um, about the situation that the church was facing. And it starts with this, that God, I mean, this is not an easy moment for the church. Everybody with me on that? God used persecution to scatter the church. I'm going to say that one more time. God used persecution to scatter the church. Why is that important? Well, earlier in Acts chapter 1, um, God had, uh, Jesus had said this, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you and you will be my witnesses in, he names four places, Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. That's, that's Acts 1.8. And look at what happened again in verse, uh, at the end of verse 1. They were scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria. God used persecution to scatter the church. I say that to say this. I think it's crucial for us as a church family and certainly for us as individual Christians to make sure that our language is precise. What do you mean by that? I think there are times when we describe happenings in the world or otherwise that, are, that say what? That something like, hey, this is really, really bad. I'm offering that this. There are times when we should say this is really, really hard, but it's not necessarily bad. The persecution that happened in Jerusalem and as, as Saul began ravaging the church, that scattered the church to fulfill what God had said to them to do. Was the persecution hard? Yes. Was the outcome bad? Somebody help me. No. James chapter 1, James, the little brother of Jesus, said this. Um, James 1, 17, every good and perfect gift comes down from, the, from above, from the Father of lights, in whom there is no shadow, not even a shift. You can't even detail, detect that he, that he would change. So, God gives good gifts, and sometimes those gifts are hard, but he uses them always for good. So I think we need to be clearer on our language. God used persecution to scatter the church, but we wouldn't necessarily say that was bad. Yes, hard, but not necessarily bad. Verse 4. Now, those who were scattered went about doing what? Preaching the word. And Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ. And the crowds with one accord paid attention to what was being said by Philip when they heard him and saw the signs that he did. For unclean spirits crying out with a loud voice came out, and many who had, um, many who had them, and many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. And so there was much joy in that city. So the next couple of things to note come out of this. So we're sold out even when our situation is difficult, right? We're sold out. We're, okay, we're following God. And these people, God people not only experienced persecution, but they um, fled, they, they lived their lives as missionaries and not refugees. God's moving us out of one place into these other places, and what did they do as they went along? Verse 4, those who were scattered went about preaching the word. They lived their lives as missionaries, not as refugees. Why do I say that? Because 
Anytime your identity is impacted by your circumstances, you can be sure that that's a wrong identity. That's a bad identity to base your life on. These people, their circumstances changed and changed for the worse, but listen, their identity did not. And what do you mean by that? Because there is one segment of their identity that uh, Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, they're ambassadors for Christ. Here's the passage. All of this, all of this is from God. So just pause here. Just earlier in the passage, he talks about being a new creation, being uh, someone who's uh, uh, desperately loved by God. Old things have passed away, new things have come. All of that stuff, all of that is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself. He made us right with him, and he gave us the ministry of reconciliation. So he called us to himself and sent us out into the world. We'll talk about that in just a second. That is, in Christ, God was doing what? He was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them. Somebody say amen to that. His mercy is more. But Instead, he was entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God, making his appeal through us. They didn't live as refugees. They live as missionaries. Why? Because their identity didn't change when their circumstances did. For you and for me, that means that Monday meeting or that Tuesday phone call or that uh, a Thursday encounter at the grocery store or wherever, you're going to step into that and a portion, a slice of your identity is going to be, I am an ambassador for Christ. I'm a missionary sent to this very moment. But that's, it's the Thursday thing. I know it's a Thursday thing. But just because that's the Thursday thing doesn't mean that your identity changes. You get to step into that with the kind of confidence that says, I know who God has made me. I, in this moment, am an ambassador for Christ. Well, but this thing on Tuesday, man, it's tough. Yes, it's tough. Let's step into that moment with this idea that a portion of my identity, a slice of my identity is, I am here representing an authorized representative of Jesus with the purpose of making an appeal for reconciliation. Not refugees, missionaries. Identity didn't change, even if the situation did. Um, a third thing, in terms of being sold out, not only are they clear about who God has made them to be, but also they saw some pretty cool stuff. Uh, verse 6, the crowds with one accord paid attention to what was being said by Philip. Um, and when they heard him and saw the signs that he did for unclean spirits, crying out with a loud voice, came out of many who had them. Many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. Those, what I'm saying is those who lived sold out lives saw God do miraculous things. Those who lived sold out lives saw God do miraculous things. Um, I get this question a lot as a pastor. Hey, I'm reading the book of Acts. I understand that you're preaching through it, that kind of thing. Uh, the things that were happening then don't seem to be happening now. I ask a couple of questions. Number one, are you sure that that's true? Because I think that there are parts of the world where they are seeing stuff just like this happen. We told a story last week about how God saved someone um, out of their uh, Muslim background by sending them a dream and then sending someone as the fulfillment of that dream. I mean, this is... Kind of normal operating stuff in the kingdom of God. And secondly, the second question I ask is, are they positioned to be able to see that? Are you and I positioned to be able to see it? Those who live sold out lives, they saw miraculous events. I think, church family, that as our world and particularly our culture dives more and more and more into secular, uh, uh, kind of a secular bent, I think we will see more and more and more of these things. Why? Because God uses these kind of things to shake the cage a little bit 
and draw people's attention to him and create a kind of curiosity in them about him and about his kingdom. Last note on this, on being sold out, is that, as I said, we are called by Jesus and sent by Jesus into the world. Called by Jesus to himself and then sent by Jesus into the world. The question I think that needs to stain your life and mine in terms of being sold out would go something like this. What does it take to gain Christ? What do I do? What does it mean for me to gain Christ? If, it's, if I have to give up something, I'm going to give up something in order to gain Jesus. If I have to uh, stop doing something, I'm going to stop doing that in order to gain Jesus. If I have to start doing something, I'm going to start doing something in order to gain Jesus. What is it that it takes for me? A sold out life is a life that says no matter what I have to give up, what I gain is far greater than anything that I would ever have to give up. Paul picks this up in Philippians 3, says it this way. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss. So all of the good things that were in Paul's life, he counted as loss. Why? Not because they're of no value. That's not what he's saying. This is what he's saying. Everything is lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. So when I think about the riches of knowing Jesus, all of this other stuff, as important as it is, pales in comparison to knowing Jesus. So I'm, I'm able to make that distinction. It says, for his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish, as trash, in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness, not standing before God rightly of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes from faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. So who makes me righteous before God? God does, not me. That's what it says. And then this part, that I may know him. I'm willing to give up anything, Paul says, in order that I may know him. You want to know what a sold out life looks like? That's it right there. I will give up anything that he requires of me in order to know him, knowing that this stuff is important, but man, this stuff is a treasure over here. Let me know him. That was the heartbeat of Paul. Church, there is a world out there watching that doesn't need more witness from mediocre and lukewarm Christians. They need people lit up on the inside, burning white hot with passion to say that I may know him, whatever it takes. That's what I want, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection. Who's on board for that? Everybody good for that? Yes, I think, right? Are you good for that? Power, let's, let's get on board with that. That I may know him and the power of his resurrection yeah. and may share his sufferings. Who's on board for no, a little fewer? So often, though, where do we experience the power of his resurrection? In the middle of sharing his sufferings. Becoming like him in his death, death, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Those who live sold out lives are called by Jesus and then sent by Jesus into the world. And they are willing to do anything, trade anything, give up anything, start anything, whatever it takes in order to gain him. I say that because this next little section of the text here puts a pretty significant contrast um, next to what we saw. So you've got experiencing persecution, but man, sold out, preaching wherever they go. Not refugees, no, no, missionaries is what they are. And they saw the miraculous and they were willing to be a part of of trading in whatever they needed needed in order to gain Jesus. Contrast that with what comes next. Verse 9. 
But there was a man named Simon who had previously practiced magic in the city and amazed the people of Samaria, saying that he himself was somebody great. Okay. They all paid attention to him, from the least to the greatest, saying, this man is the power of God that is called great. That's an interesting business card right there. Verse 11. And they paid attention to him uh, because for a long time he had amazed them with his magic. But when they believed Philip as he preached the good news about the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. And so Simon gets on the bandwagon, verse 13, even Simon himself believed and was baptized. And after being baptized, excuse me, he continued with Philip and seeing signs and great miracles performed, he was amazed. Now, I set that up with this whole idea of the sold out church, people who are following hard after God and paying any price to know him and follow him with Simon here who thought he was something and then said, oh, this is a little thing here. Maybe I'll just jump on board here. Simon, if you will, professed belief and even had baptism as an expression of that, but had no relationship with with Jesus. How do I know that? Because he was in love with power. We'll see that here in just a second. He was in love with power. Listen to me, church family. Your heart, meaning not your physical heart, the, the inner core of who you are, has one place and one place only for a preeminent love. And it's either Jesus or it's something else. John said it this way, 1 John chapter 2, don't love the world or the things in the world because if you love the world, the love of the Father is not in you. Your heart only has capacity to have one preeminent love, one. Simon was in love with power. Some of us are in love with pleasure. Some of us love our stuff, our possessions, way too much. Some of us love standing in the community. Whatever it may be, I'm telling you, there's only one place in your heart and in my heart for preeminence. And here's the thing. um, If your belief in Jesus isn't the shaping force of your life, you may be a fan of his, but you're not a follower. You know what a fan is, right? You wear the garb. You cheer at the appropriate times from the sidelines. Your emotions go up and down with your team, maybe. You you critique at an appropriate time. I could do that better. They should have. But you're still up in the stands. You're not engaged in the game. Curiosity, like Simon's, is not the same as true faith. A relationship with King Jesus radically impacts our allegiance and our affection and the actions that follow those things. Curiosity, like Simon's, and true faith are not the same thing. It, they can look some of the same. He professed belief and even got baptized. But he, his heart, as we'll see in just a second, was not right. And that leads us to this, this kind of second part of this story. You've got these, this picture of a sold-out church And this kind of copycat bandwagon guy. Verse 14. Now when the apostles at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent to them Peter and John, who came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. And so this is kind of how this went. Uh, um, Excuse me, I'll finish verse 16. For he had not fallen on any of them, they'd only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. So The Holy Spirit fell on them in Acts 2. You got other places where it happens. And so they're just saying, hey, these people, they came to know Jesus. Let's go lay our hands on them and pray for them and see if God would do for them what he's done for us. And he did. Um, Verse 18. Uh, This is important because 
the kingdom of God is not for sale, okay? A people of God are sold out, but the kingdom is not for sale. It's already been bought. Verse 18. Now, when Simon saw that the spirit was given through the laying on of the apostles' hands, he did what? He offered them money. It's not for sale. Saying, give me this power also so that anyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. But Peter said to him, may your silver perish with you because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. The kingdom of God is not for sale. Simon was in love with power. He's like, oh, here's a, here's a new trick I can add to my repertoire. Here's a new thing I can put on my LinkedIn. Let me just do this. I'll buy in a little bit so that you can. And no, 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 no. The kingdom of God is not for sale. Anybody who tells you, excuse me, let me say it, state it, and then I'll, I'll caveat it. God cannot be bought and he cannot be manipulated. He cannot. That, that's what Simon was trying to do. Give me, I'll give you some money, you give me this power, and we'll just kind of make this thing happen. God cannot be bought, and he cannot be manipulated. Those who tell you otherwise are liars. And we have them in our society today who tell you otherwise. What do you mean? I mean, they show up on your TV screen or mail you stuff or whatever, and I don't, we don't normally spend a lot of time on this. I don't want to spend a lot of time on it now. Here's the thing. If people say, hey, you sow this in, you give to me, you do this, you do that, and God will bless you, da 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 what they're doing is turning God into some mathematical formula. Input here equals output there. I'm telling you, they're liars. He's the king. He's not a formula. You, you, you can't somehow kind of get God on your side by doing X, Y, or Z down here, giving to... Inevitably, it always shows up, hey, if you'll, sow, if you'll just sow a faith seed... And do this, and then God will bless you, that kind of thing. One knucklehead said this. If you will just make a donation on your credit card, I think God is going to wipe out all of your credit card debt. <sighs> Mercy. Listen to me. They're, they're liars, okay? Anybody who tells you that God can be manipulated and teaches that God can be bought or manipulated, they're liars. And they do things like, well, I promise you this miracle water, or I promise you this, this one guy was selling these big wafer crackers that he made from uh, a recipe for manna in Ezekiel. The only problem is manna showed up in Exodus, not Ezekiel. That's a whole different problem, okay? Whole different issue. But... He's going to say this, and you're, everything's going to go great for you. You're going to get healed and not get cancer, and your bank account's going to grow. Blah, 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 blah. They're liars. One cat a few weeks ago uh, wanted, uh, made sure that his people believed with him for a $54 million private jet so that he could go tell people about Jesus. They're liars, okay? They're liars. Those who say otherwise, God can, cannot be bought or manipulated. Those who say otherwise are liars. Here's the thing, though. Those who um, try to do this, um, who try to manipulate God, one of two things is true. Number one, either they're so messed up in their understanding of God that that they need to get deprogrammed, if you will. They They have such a small view of God that they think he's a formula. That could be true. Or, listen, and I have some really pastoral tenderness for this. People are so hurt that they say, hey, God, if you'll just do this, then I'll do this. People are so hurt that they would rather have his help than have him. I got some tenderness in me for that, but it's still the same issue, trying to manipulate or buy God. That's what Simon did. 
um, you need to know this, that God is not after your money, he's after your heart. Verse 21. Just back up to verse 20. But Peter said to him, may your silver perish with you because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. I don't want your money. Verse 21, you have neither part nor lot in this matter for your heart, don't miss that, your heart is not right before God. Repent therefore this wickedness of yours. Pray to the Lord that if possible the intent of your heart may be forgiven you for I see that you are in the gall of bitterness and in the bond of iniquity. God wants your heart. It is a shallow view um, of the deep work of God if you think otherwise. Some people grew up thinking, well, God wants me to behave this certain way. Well, that may be true, but that's not what he wants preeminently. God wants me to do these kinds of things or not do these kinds of things with my body. It may be true, but that's not what he wants. That's not first on his agenda. God wants me to, to give money to the church or to pray or read my Bible. All of those things are true, but they're not first in the heart of God. God wants his heart to be connected to your heart. He wants to dive deep down into in the insides of you, kind of pull back all the other stuff and lay hold of that which is central inside of you. He wants to lay siege to what is in the middle of you because he knows if he gets your heart, all the other stuff is going to come. It's the Pharisees who thought that they could win God and be on God's side by obeying without heart. That's what got them in trouble in the first place. It's not our money. It's not our rituals. It's not our bodies. It's not our obedience. It's our hearts. And God knows, Jesus knows this. If he gets a hold of your heart, the rest of it's going to come to. Just a couple more things here, and we're going to take communion point this out because if he's after your heart and you say, God, I believe that you're after my heart, but I don't really think that you want it. You may want that guy's heart or that person's heart or that girl back there. You can have her heart. You'd probably want it. I'm looking inside of me and I don't think you want my heart. Verse 23, I see that you are in the goal of bitterness and in the bond of iniquity. God sees you as you are. You don't have to pretend with God, folks. You don't have to pretend, you don't have to go to him with this kind of person, this, this facade of who you wish that you were, who you once were, who you think you're gonna become, uh, who you're pretending to be, who you presently are presenting yourself to be, um, or even who you tell yourself you're tell yourself you are, you get to go to God just as you are because he sees you and he knows you where you are. If you're here and you say, oh, God's after my heart, he's just not after my heart because of all this stuff. Simon, he was in the gall of bitterness in the bond of iniquity. I don't exactly know what all that means. I know it's not good. And the verse right before that, look at verse 22. So repent, therefore, of this wickedness of yours and pray to the Lord that if possible, the intent of your heart may be forgiven. He knows all about you and still chooses to love you. And he offers something to you. What is that? He offers forgiveness and he offers freedom. You don't have to be stuck in the bonds of iniquity. You don't have to be rolling around in this, in this soup of bitterness. You don't have to be bound up and chained up and walking in bondage. Instead, you can walk in forgiveness and you can walk in freedom, not because you're so awesome, but because of what Jesus has done for you. He's called you to himself and he is sending 
you out. Before we go to communion, just look how the story ends. Verse 25. Now, when they had testified and spoken the word of the Lord, they returned to Jerusalem. What were they doing along the way? Preaching the gospel to many villages of the Samaritans. The story ends just like it starts. A people captured by God, ravished by his love, then telling others about this. Called to himself and then sent out in his name. He knows where you are, folks. He knows where you are. And he offers forgiveness and freedom. And we get to carry that message out. But before we do that, we're going to pause and take it 